The following message was presented during the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministries 2017 Prophecy Conference season. Now here's Chris Katolka with a message from Daniel chapter 11 verses 1 through 45, Past Enemies Become Prophetic Players. Daniel chapter 11, everybody. We're wrapping up. Um, have you ever been stuck in a line before? Okay. Uh, that's the way uh, I'm going to present Daniel chapter 11. I was, one time I was wrapping up a trip to Israel, and I was bringing up the rear at, uh, at um, Ben-Gurion International Airport. And sometimes those lines can seem so long as you're waiting in, um, at the airport to go through security. And, uh, and so I'm standing there, and you get to learn about different cultures when you go to Israel. You don't just learn about Israeli culture. There are cultures from all around the world that are there. You, know, you learn that the, uh, the Asian culture, they don't even care about lines. They just kind of hover in, you know? <laughs> they don't care about lines. They just move in packs like this, okay? Uh, there was uh, this one time I was standing there, and this, this particular culture that will go unnamed, I'm just standing there in line, and all of a sudden, they come right up behind me. A whole, it seemed like a whole bus of people come right up behind me, and I could feel a nose <laughs> breathing down my back, and I just, I'm an American, you know, give me my space, you know, this number. And I'm trying, to prov- I'm trying to give personal space to the people in front of me, my team, you know, we all like our personal space, but this person, I could feel them, and I felt stuck. Do you ever feel stuck? I feel stuck. I feel stuck between my twins sometimes, okay? But the reality is this, Daniel chapter 11 is the picture of Israel in between, stuck right now, Stuck. And we're going to look at the, 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 the message title here is Past Enemies Become Prophetic Players. We'll talk about that in a moment. But you'll notice in your booklet that you have that every single one of them is called what? Israel in between. Israel stuck in between. I want to read this to you really quick. I write these out so that we can kind of have an idea of what's going on in Daniel chapter 11 and in the other uh, chapter that I did, chapter 5. History and prophecy merge with one another seamlessly in Daniel's final vision. But it's important to note what history for us is prophetic for Daniel and the displaced Jewish people who eagerly wait to know what their future holds. Now, see, we're looking at a lot of this stuff as history and prophecy, but for Daniel, when he's writing it, it's all what? It's all prophecy, okay? Just for, that's important to remember, okay? So when I talk about history, it's history to us, but prophecy to Daniel. Israel sits in the middle of an ancient battle fought between two Greek kingdoms, the Ptolemaic, the south, and the Seleucid, the northern kingdoms. And these two kingdoms fought for more land and more power, and Israel is the fulcrum. Daniel's vision, final vision, opens with a brief summary describing the rise and fall of the Persian kingdom, the classical Greek period under the leadership of Alexander the Great. We'll look at all that. The focus of the majority of his vision rests on one Greek ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes. The history and prophecy of Antiochus Epiphanes work to reveal the character and nature of the Antichrist and events that are yet to unfold. The turmoil surrounding Israel and Daniel 11 is the vehicle. Everybody, here it is. It's the vehicle. We're on, we're stuck in the middle. I was just on the Schuylkill Expressway and stuck in the middle trying to get here, okay? 
And so, but it's the vehicle that's carrying us, Daniel 11, the, getting the reader to the hope of his revealing in Daniel chapter 12, when God will deliver his people and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. That sounds like freedom, doesn't it? Those who are wise, wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above. That sounds like liberation and freedom, not being stuck in a line with someone breathing down your neck, okay? So let's turn to Daniel chapter 11. You've already done that, and I've been yapping, so let me get my Bible there. Daniel chapter 11, and look at what it says here. It says, as for me, in the first year of Darius' meet, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And it's probably talking about the angel Gabriel here, who's talking about protecting um, what's going on right now, or, or what's happening in Persia. And he's also giving this word to Daniel. In our last conference, we actually got a great question when we were in Winona Lake, Indiana. And the question was this, why isn't Daniel considered a prophet in the Hebrew scriptures? You know, he's not considered a prophet. You know, Daniel actually never gives prophecy. Did you notice that? He never actually gives prophecy. What's happening to Daniel? He's the one what? He's receiving it. He's the one receiving the prophecy from the messengers of God. And so again, he's receiving this prophecy here. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in, arise in Persia. Remember, we're in a Persian empire as Daniel's writing this. So he sees three more kings coming and they shall arise in Persia. And a fourth shall be far richer than all the rest of them. And then when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against the kingdom of Greece. Now listen, entire semesters of seminary classes and Bible classes are dedicated to Daniel chapter 11 because there is history, folks, that's throughout here. We can't focus on every single name and character. I want to focus on the idea of Israel being the one that's what? Stuck, everybody? in between. Remember, Israel in between. Israel is stuck. And so now what we're seeing is that this Persian empire is on the rise, and this fourth king comes, and, 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 and he, he gets pride in him to go up against Greece. Who's the ruler of Greece at this time? You begin to see the rise of Greece moving, and you have a one power player that makes unifies Greece and begins to expand Greece. And his name is... Good, we've got some great historians here. This is fantastic. You're doing my job for me. Look at that. Uh, verse three, then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds. This idea that you're going to have uh, Alexander the Great is going to expand the Greek empire greater than any empire has ever seen before. It's going to go from basically Greece into what we know as Turkey and Europe, uh, like Eastern Europe, all the way out to India. It's going to capture tons of land. This one young man, a young man, okay, a young buck, all right, as Steve would say, is going to have the audacity to lead his people into a kingdom that is almost uncontrollable. And he will actually die of a fever out on battle. Just like that, his life ends at a young age. 
This young man that made Greece, and remember, Greece was made up of a bunch of uh, different people groups at that time. He was able to unify them, and by unifying, expand them as well. And so he does almost the impossible as a young man. You could imagine the Persian kingdom thought, oh, this is no problem. This is just a young guy. We've got this all under control. The Persian empire falls under the weight of Alexander the Great. That's amazing to think about. But then what happens is that after his fall around 333 BC, you see something interesting happen. It says that his kingdom is what? Divided into four parts. Four different parts. Now, between his death and the division of the kingdom, there are a series of years where people try to maintain control. Some family members of Alexander the Great try to maintain control. A prime minister of Alexander the Great tries to take control, but it can't be controlled. The empire is too large. It's too diverse. And so they divide the empire into four parts, and it's four different generals that take on the rulership of, of, uh, of Greece. And that's important to see because these four generals will ultimately come down to two players, the king of what? The north and the king of the south. And here's the reason that's important. Because the entire time that what we're seeing is this. Notice it starts big. First, we start with the Persian Empire, where, Dan where Daniel's writing. That's his time frame. That's what he understands. Then it narrows in a little bit more to the Greek Empire. And then it narrows in a little bit more to the four divided kingdoms that come. And now we're going to get to the two kings, the kings of the north and the kings of the south, and the struggle that they're going to have with one another. And the reason this is important is because it's focusing us from a global perspective down to what? Down to Israel. And like the message that we heard last night at the Honor Israel Night, did you notice how the speaker started off very big of what was happening in the Middle East, what was happening in the administration, what was happening in Iran, what was happening in Turkey? He starts off very big, and then at the very end, what does he do? He brings it home to what? Israel. Israel. Isn't it interesting that thousands of years removed, we're still having the same discussions. And that's because it's an age-old tale, my friends, of Satan working tirelessly to keep Israel, what? In between. Because if he can keep Israel in between, then what? God cannot fulfill his plan. That's what he thinks of redemption. And so the story continues. You have these four different generals, kings of the north, the kings of the south. Seleucid and Ptolemy are going to become the two generals that matter the most, the, the Seleucid dynasty and the Ptolemaic dynasty. Think of this as a Greek empire. Everybody is Hellenized. Everybody's Greek, okay? They think like Greeks, but the Greeks of the north have control from Babylon, okay? That's the Greeks have control of Babylon, and the Greeks of the south have control of Egypt and Alexandria. And remember, who sits in between Babylon and Egypt and, Alex and Alexandria? Who sits in between? Israel. Everyone's going to be fighting for this land. I can't walk you through all of history, but I can show you, I want to show you two major uh, battles that happen uh, for power over this area. So the first one I'm, I'm going to go to here it starts in 11.5. Look at this. Then the kings of the south shall be, uh, shall, uh, shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger 
and he shall rule and his authority shall be a great authority. Ptolemy I, Soter, which is the first ruler of the south, the king of the south, actually partners with the king of the north. Actually, he technically wasn't a king yet. If you look on your sheet that you have here, you notice I put a little diagram in there of the kings of the north and the kings of the south, and you'll see that the king of the south technically doesn't become, a, a, or sorry, the king of the north doesn't become a king until a little bit later in history. And so actually these two people are working together, the king of the north and this prince, he's not a king yet, are working together to defeat one of the other generals. And they work together and they do it. And look what it says in 11.5. It says this, the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes, that's talking about the king of the, the future king of the north, shall be stronger than he, and he shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. So what happens is antagonist is the other general, one of the other uh, two generals that's out there. These two men, Ptolemy and Seleucid, they defeat this other general, and they take his land, and in the end, the king of the north ends up with more land and more power than the king of the south. Does that make sense? Are you following with me? And that's exactly what the text is alluding to here. Then the king of the south shall be strong. He is a strong man, but one of his princes, the, king of the, the, the future king of the north, shall be stronger than he and will rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. And alliances will be formed. But the thing that's interesting is this, is that they will fight for battle over this land of Israel. And one of the fights that takes place happens around 306 BC in where? Gaza. In Gaza, which is where? In Israel. They fight for that land. And Ptolemy, the king of the south, maintains control of Israel. And what you're going to see is that Greek culture is going to infuse itself into the people of Israel as well. And when, look at, when you're a part of a kingdom, you get inundated and, uh, and you get kind of sucked in and, and into the realm of their politics as well, okay? These, even, though, even though the Jewish people were living in this area at that time, they were still being influenced by the politics of the land. Uh, the politics of the rulers of that land. And that was the southern king, Ptolemy. So that was 11.5. There will be a, alliances that are formed and, and certain uh, wars that will happen between the king of the north and the king of the south. But I want to continue because time moves on very quickly. Look with me in 11.13. Watch this. For the king of the north shall rise, uh, again, rise, uh, raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. We move on in history a little further now, and we're getting to another king of the north, and his name is Antiochus III. He will become the father of Antiochus IV. Who's Antiochus IV? Epiphanes. He's one of our main characters that we're getting to. We're seeing as the story continues, the focus becomes more narrow and more focused on one particular character, Antiochus Epiphanes. But his father was very influential in building and expanding the northern king, uh, kingdom of, of, uh, of uh, the Seleucid dynasty, that, that, those northern kings. And this time he went 
for the, uh, the, the uh, land of Israel, and he did it at a weak moment in the king of the south, the, the southern kingdom area of, of, uh, down in Egypt, during one of their weak moments. And that weak moment is interesting because, see, Ptolemy IV died all of a sudden. And when he died, he really didn't have anybody to leave the kingdom to except for his infant son, Ptolemy V. Okay, so now you have a king down in the south who is an infant, okay? I can't leave my kids to do one job like clean up their room. I don't understand how you leave an infant to rule over an empire, okay? This was, this was Antiochus III's moment to shine. He knew that he could do something at this time because they, he knew that the kingdom of the south, the, the kings of the south, that, the, the, that battle that's going on there has a weak moment and he strategized and used it and he actually ends up going to battle over it. And look what it says here. They went for Israel at a weak moment for Ptolemy the, the V, the king of the south. Ptolemy the V was only an infant when he took power and this battle between these two kings take place in Banyas. Which is also what? Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus says what? Caesarea Philippi. Upon this rock, what? I will build my church. That's where that is, in the, in a, in the northern part of Israel. And so you see again what? Israel stuck in between two battles. You know, the whole picture of Daniel is the idea that Daniel is receiving visions and dreams and prophecy of a day that will come when Gentiles will no longer rule over the land. That's what the hope is. That's the freedom. That freedom of coming out of that line when you're stuck in the middle and finally the freedom to move and to have control over yourself again. That's what this entire prophecy is moving us to. It's getting us to Daniel chapter 12 when finally Israel will have control over their land and their king, the Messiah, Jesus, will rule as the Jewish king over a Jewish land. That's the hope that they're having. And so we see that uh, Antiochus III wants this land. Remember, this land is so valuable in the ancient day. Uh, we didn't have airplanes that flew you from uh, you know, um, uh, Saudi Arabia all the way over to New York City uh, in a day. When, when people traveled, they had to travel a, a way that would get around deserts and take long paths to make sure they were near water and food and lodging and things of that nature. And so Israel was, a, as you probably all know already, Israel was a natural land bridge that connected the south, Egypt, to the north, Babylon, that connected Greece and Macedonia and, uh, and Asia Minor all the way down into the northern Africa area where people lived. It, it was a natural land bridge. It was a toll road. That's what it was. And where that toll road met at its narrowest point was a place called Megiddo, where the battle of what? Armageddon will take place. There have been battles fought at Megiddo for centuries, millennia, because of the value of what that area is to the rulers around there. Everybody wanted a piece of Israel, because if you get a piece of Israel, you control the traffic that comes in and out of the world at that time. That's why they fought over this and wanted it so bad. You control that area, you control the world, basically. And so that's why it's so valuable. 
And you can see even today how still valuable that land is, that people are still fighting. Israel, it moves in a little bit closer. Look with me in Daniel chapter 11, verse 21. Watch this. We move from Antiochus III, who captures Israel. So now, remember, the power moves from Ptolemy uh, and the king of the south. Israel is now in the hands of the king of the north. And look what it says here. Power transitions, verse 21. In his place, in in Antiochus III's uh, place, shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall utterly be swept away before him and broken. Even the prince of the covenant. Man, this is fascinating because we're diving into not only now, we're kind of centering in closer. We were looking at battles, but first the big picture of Persia and then Greece. And then we got a little bit closer to the four kingdoms and how it narrows down between Egypt and Babylon and these two Greek cultures that are battling over the land of Israel. And now we're getting into the Jewish politics because now Antiochus IV is going in, Epiphanes is going in in an attempt to control the politics of the Jewish people in the land, the prince of the covenant. Who is he talking about there? I have here up on on the screen three different people, three different rulers of Israel during that time. Onias III, Jason, his brother, and Menelaus. Let me just tell you a quick story here. It's quite fascinating. When you notice after the exile, Jewish people go back to the land of Israel, and they begin to rebuild, and they're longing for something. Do you remember what they're longing for? The coming of the Messiah, the Moshiach, the king of Israel the king of Israel. They knew they didn't have a king yet. Okay, that's important. When the Jewish people return back to Jerusalem, back to the land that Cyrus the Great gave them permission to go back to, they knew that as they were rebuilding, the king had not come yet. That's what Zechariah is writing about. Remember, Zechariah's writing as a post-exilic prophet. The coming of the king, when is that going to happen? So who ruled? Well, technically, Persia still ruled over the land. But it's interesting. They didn't set up a king. They set up a governor of the land who reported back to Rome. Does that, I mean, reported back to Persia. Does that make sense? There was a governor of Israel that was Jewish that reported back to Persia. And his name, do you remember his name? Began with a Z. Zerubbabel. That's right. He wasn't a king. He was a governor. But what happens is the political structure of the Jewish people changes a little bit. All of a sudden, instead of a king ruling the people, now you have what? Priests ruling the people. The priestly power begins to rise. Now you have priests that act as kings in the land, which is unbiblical. Who is it that that Jesus stands before as he's being held in trial? The high priest, that's right. The high priests were ruling everything at that time. They not only had religious power, they had political power. And Antiochus knew if he can get the political power structures, he can control the land even better. 
So look at this. Onias III is a high priest at that time, and he opposes Hellenism. That means he wants Jewish people to maintain their Jewish identity, and he doesn't like it when the Seleucid king or the Ptolemaic king, either one, comes in and begins to tell Jewish people they need to be Greek, not Jews. Greek first. He doesn't like that. So Jason, his brother, knowing this, this is great, he knows this. He goes, to, uh, he, he goes to Antiochus and goes, I will pay you money for a position. I will let all these Jewish people, I am pro-Hellenization of the Jewish people. You can count on me, Antiochus, to make sure all of my Jewish brothers become Greek. And you know what? Antiochus says, you got yourself a deal. You got yourself a deal. And you know what happens? Jason takes control. But then Jason wants to send money to Antiochus. So Menelaus goes with some money in his pocket and he shows up and he goes, look, I'll give you more money than Jason if you give me rulership over the Jewish people as high priest. And what is Antiochus going to say? No. He says, of course, a deal's a deal. Great negotiations. Sends him back and now Menelaus is ruling. Antiochus not only begins to play around with controlling the land, he's now controlling the politics of the land and the people of the land through politics. Now, Antiochus goes to battle. I want to see. Uh, Antiochus goes to battle. This is interesting. Look at this in, uh, in our passage here. Antiochus goes to battle again with the south, and he stopped in Alexandria. Antiochus is gaining a lot of notoriety. He's beginning to feel the power of being able to go down and defeat the king of the south. And so on his way down, he actually ends up finding out that he's not going to do that well. Look at me in verse 24 through 28. Watch this. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province. He shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand. And for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. So eventually, the king of, of the south was stopped in Alexandria. They, they, they work against one another again, another fight that takes place. And I'm moving along quickly here. But what happens, what's interesting, is rumor got back to Israel for some reason that Alexander, or Antiochus had died. And Jason attempted to reinstate himself as a king over Menelaus. And Antiochus was enraged by this, everybody. He was enraged. He couldn't handle the idea that there was a riot going on up in Israel while he's trying to fight a battle down uh, in the south. And so ultimately what happens is a second battle happens. And this time, something interesting happens. A new empire shows up right at that battle. Rome. The ships of, you see it in your text, Katim. You see that? Katim, the ships of Katim, this is Rome. Rome shows up, and before you know it, 
Rome is backing the king of the south. Even though Antiochus had the south by its neck, Rome shows up just in time and draws, the, 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 the general at that time draws a circle around Antiochus Epiphanes and says to him, listen, if you do this again, I'm coming after you. So if you're going to step out of this line before you step out, you need to make a decision. Are you done with this? And he agreed. And in his rage, he goes back to the land of Israel. Remember, there was a little political upheaval that was going on between Jason and Menelaus. He loses a battle. Rome shows up, embarrasses him. He goes back to Jerusalem, the place he has control. And that's when he commits everybody in the text, the abomination of desolation, which is the idea of taking false gods and putting them in the temple, Greek gods. The idea of making Jewish people slaughter pigs in, in, in allegiance to the Greek society, stopping Sabbath worship, stopping circumcision, stopping Torah reading. He wanted no Jew to be a Jew anymore. Now you're Greek, period, done. The pride was welling up in Antiochus because, number one, he lost a battle, a strategic battle. Rome outplayed him. The kings of the south outplayed him. He was being outplayed in the politics of the, of the land. And so you have this battle taking place in uh, Antiochus at that time, and that's when he enacts his rage on the people of Israel. And I can't, we can't get into the story, of course, because I'm already down to four minutes, which is fantastic. But I want to show you something. I'm trying my best, people. Hundreds of years of history in 30 minutes, all right? I want you to see what happens. Because there's a transition that takes place that's important to see. I encourage you to go home and study Daniel 11 and, the, and the, for Daniel, the prophecy of Daniel 11, the history for us. You know, many scholars actually believe, liberal scholars actually believe that, I, I said this before, that Daniel was written during the Dead Sea period time, time frame, uh, that it was written around 200 BC or, or so. And it was written looking back on history. And the reason they say that is because Daniel 11 is so detailed and so on point with history, it's impossible for God's prophetic word to be that exact. That's what they say. Isn't that horrible? But Daniel's receiving this play-by-play -play vision because it's Israel that's what? Stuck in between. Do you see how they're stuck in these battles that are going on? And it's going to really be the thing that elevates us to Daniel chapter 12 when finally his glorious appearing comes. That's what we're getting at here. And so look, at there's a transition that happens in verse 36. Look at this. And the king shall do as he wills. There's a transition there. Every time the king has been mentioned in the past, what has it always been, uh, what's been its prefix that's, uh, that comes before it? It's either the what, the king of the south or the king of the, there's never just the king. Now, all of a sudden, there's a transition that happens. And scholars say this is the transition from history to prophecy. Because now, all of a sudden, you have a third figure. There's still the kings of the north, there's still the kings of the south, but now you just have this man titled the king. And look what it says. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself 
magnify himself above every god, shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall no pay no attention to the gods of his father. That, that's his heritage or to uh, one beloved by women. Look at, can I tell you something? Here's what's fascinating is we're looking at here imagery and prophecy of the antichrist. That's where the transition takes place. And you begin to see the character of the antichrist uh, coming out here. That's what you're seeing, the character of the antichrist. To be the antichrist, that means you're trying to be what? You're trying to be Christ. So what you're seeing is that the antichrist, who is this demonic leader in the world, wants to have the same power that he knows the Messiah Jesus will have. And he's going to do everything in his power to mimic him. Did Jesus have interest in women, everybody? He didn't. Did he? Did he ever indicate, never indicated that in the scriptures? He was only there to serve and, and to share the Father's love for everybody. That was it. He did not bring himself within the interests of women or getting married or having kids. That's the Da Vinci Code, okay? That is not the Bible, okay? So what you're seeing is the Antichrist, Satan can only mimic what God creates. Satan is not a creator. He, he, he only takes things and copies them and then messes with them, okay? That's important to remember. And so that's what we're seeing. We're seeing this desire for power, he shall not pay attention to the gods of his fathers. He'll magnify himself above all, which is exactly what you see in 2 Thessalonians 2.4. I want to encourage you to read that. And look what it says. He shall honor the gods of fortress instead of these, a god whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and cost, costly gifts. That means he's going to be strategic in war. He's only going to care about war, expanding his empire. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with help from a, of a foreign god to whom acknowledge him. He shall, uh, shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide a land for price. Look, I have to wrap up here. But the picture is this, is that all of these past historical players were working tirelessly to make sure God could not accomplish his plan for Israel in the land. That's what Daniel 11 is all about. Making sure God couldn't accomplish what he had promised. But you can't stop God. And you know what's awesome too? I always like to say this. Israel's story is our story. Okay? I like to say that because oftentimes I think we look back on Israel and the church looks back on Israel as just an example of what not to do. Can I tell you something? Most of my days I live and I go, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I acted just like Israel did. Their story is what? My story too. And I think it's really important for us to see that right now we are stuck in between. We're stuck in between Jesus' first coming and what? His glorious appearing. Isn't that awesome? In the same way Israel and Daniel 11 is being squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and pressured and pressured and pressured by foreign nations, foreign kings. Can I tell you something? We are being squeezed and squeezed and pressured and pressured by the prince of the power of the air constantly. 
And it's our duty to make sure we are living lives pleasing to God, even under that state of pressure, so that when he returns, he finds us, what, blameless in his eyes by the blood of Christ. Israel's story is our story, too. You might feel stuck, somebody breathing down your neck, but know something, Jesus is coming back, and he will liberate us and free us from this bondage. For more audio resources, including MP3 downloads of past Prophecy Conferences, visit us at foi.org.